Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 43 through 48 this morning. While you're turning there, if you would, rise as well as we honor the public reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how we know the difficulty of this teaching, the difficulty of loving those who are our enemies. Or we're thankful that you loved us when we were yours, that you sent your son to die for us when we were yet rebellious. Lord, we do pray that you would grant us the grace so to reflect you that we would be able to love our enemies even as, as you have loved yours, and that in so doing we would bring glory and honor to your name. Father, in, even in recognizing our own weakness, we, we believe the words that you have given to us, that it is even through the preaching of your word and through your spirit that you can help us to grow in grace, that you do build up your people so that we can obey the commands that you've given. And so, Lord, we do pray even now that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, that you would put your word within our hearts, that we might not sin against you, that you would make the preaching of your word effective by your spirit, that we ourselves might grow in love. For we do ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you remember, uh, over the summer of last year, we started to go through the book of First Peter. And the reason for that was because we were all suffering because of the coronavirus. There were very many things that many people were going through that were related or perhaps even not related, but there were, there were a number of things that uh, people suffered last year. 2020 was, without a doubt, a very difficult year for many people. And one of the things, if you remember, that I said over and over again with regard to First Peter is that it's not just important that you endure suffering, but it matters how you suffer. It matters how you suffer. You are called to suffer in a particular way. 
And particularly, even as we think about the difficulties that came from the coronavirus, another thing that has become more and more difficult and something that will likely continue and perhaps even get worse is that the, it appears that the number of enemies that the church faces is growing, that the opposition to the church is growing. And so even all the things that we spoke about with First Peter are going to be likely going to apply more and more as the church enters into more and more difficult times. But even as we think of, as we talked about with First Peter, that there is a need to suffer in a particular way, this is particularly important to keep in mind when the suffering comes at the hands of enemies. There is a particular way that we are to suffer at the hands of enemies. And here the Lord Jesus Christ addresses exactly the way in which you are to suffer when you have many enemies surrounding you. And that is, you are to suffer even as you love your enemies. That even as Christ here is continuing to expound the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God that goes far beyond what the Pharisees were teaching, even as he, as he continues to expound this, he ends here with this last, in this last section, speaking about the need to love your enemies. Love your enemies. This is how you reflect the greater righteousness of the kingdom. And that this is very difficult goes without saying. This is the reason why we read the entire book of Jonah earlier in the service. Here is one who was called to love his enemies and who understood the great difficulty of it. Now, if you remember even the historical context of Jonah himself, he was going to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which in one generation of, of Jonah's lifetime would destroy the northern kingdom and, and carry everyone off into exile. This was, this was a true enemy of the people of God, and he was called to love them, and he really was unable to do so in a way uh, that was consistent with the gospel or with the commands that he was given. But this same command is true of us. Even as the number of enemies increases in the church, it is our duty still to love our enemies. It is our duty to do this. And this is what Christ explains. You are to love your enemies because you are his sons and daughters. You are the sons and daughters of God, and God himself loves his enemies. And you are to reflect your father as you love others. Now, uh, as we've been doing for a number of weeks now, we'll look at this passage under two headings. There is, of course, this, this passage is set up as the way all the other antitheses are set up. There is a statement, and then Christ gives an antithesis. You've heard this, and I tell you this. And so we'll look at this passage under those uh, two headings as, as well this, here this morning. We'll look at what the, the, the Jews were teaching, what the Pharisees were teaching with regard to the obligation to love your neighbor. And then we'll look at what Christ says. Now, notice, in terms of the statement, notice uh, this is a, uh, the, the first part is a quotation from Leviticus 19.18, which is um, given as, in other places in the scripture, as the sum of the entire law. The sum of the law is that that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. And yet there's a second part that is added on to this. And that is, and you shall hate your enemy. Now, this second part was never said by Moses. It's something that was implied in the teaching of the Pharisees at the time. And the reason why this is the case is because really the question in terms of the interpretation of Leviticus 19:18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The most important question to understand what your obligation is, is the question of, who is my neighbor? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Uh, if your neighbor is only, for instance, the church, then the obligation to love doesn't extend beyond the church, and therefore it can you can rightfully uh, say 
that Moses is teaching that you are, in fact, to hate your enemies. This is the way the Jews interpret this. Notice again here, as we've seen all the way throughout chapter 5, that Christ is not making this antithesis with Moses. He is not saying that Moses got it wrong and I am superseding the law of Moses. He is saying Moses got it right. I am the faithful expounder of Moses and the lawgiver who doesn't contradict Moses at all. And it is rather the Pharisees who have gotten it wrong. It is, the, it is the interpretation of the Jews at the time as they got the question wrong. What does it mean that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves? Now, that the question revolves around who our neighbor is can be seen by the way that Christ interacts with a lawyer in Luke chapter 10, where he gives the famous uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, this was, was exactly what would happen. Christ is, is, uh, is asked what, what, the, what the, the laws are and you know, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And then the response comes from the, from the lawyer, well, who is my neighbor? This is the great question. The purpose of the, of the parable of the Good Samaritan is to say that it's not just the Jews who are your neighbor. The, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the Samaritan was being actually the good neighbor, even though he was in some sense outside of the church. He was outside of the people of God uh, at the time. And the one of the implications, at least, or a number of implications we can draw from the Good Samaritan, but uh, one of them, at least, is that neighbor is to be defined as everyone who's around you. Everyone who's around you is, in fact, your neighbor. And if this is the case, then you cannot say that the meaning of Leviticus 19.18 is you are to love your love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, if you do define neighbor the way that the, the Jews did, if you define it as the people who uh, truly believe in God, there are the people who would have been you know, living in Israel or who are faithful to God. If you define neighbor in that way, if you limit it, then you can rightfully say that uh, the opposite of neighbor would be the enemy, and I have no obligation to love, the, to love those people. And this is perhaps why in the Jewish culture of the, of, at the time, there, is, there was, in fact, a, a very uh, anti-Gentile attitude. Uh, the, the, the people of God, the, the Jews, thought that uh, you know, uh, all the grace of God was with them, and they looked down upon uh, those who were Gentiles. There were a lot of rules about eating with Gentiles, uh, that sort of thing. We see even uh, here in, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5, even in this very passage, uh, that Christ will say, do not even the Gentiles do the same. The, the idea is that Christ knew that their attitude towards the Gentiles was extraordinarily low. And this was because they had misinterpreted what Moses had said. And they were saying, you shall love your neighbor, which implies as well that you are quite free and can, in fact, hate your enemy. Now, what this means then, though, if that is wrong, and if our neighbor is, in fact, everybody who's around us, then it means that your neighbor even does include your enemies and includes those who are outside the church. And as Christ will go on to say in the antithesis, it even includes those who persecute you. It even includes those who persecute you. And so Christ says, you've heard that it's said, the Jews have been teaching for some time, the Pharisees have been teaching, you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, he says in the antithesis in verses 44 through 47, you are to love your enemies and you are to pray for those who persecute you. You are to do two things for them. You are to love them. You are to love them and you are to pray for them. You are to do good to those who hate you. You are to love them and you are to pray for them. Now, this idea that what Christ is actually speaking about um, clearly is more than simply just doing outward good deeds for those who are your enemies. 
the idea of loving your enemies goes beyond that. You must actually be seeking their good out of a deep-seated concern for the person. This is to say there's actually supposed to be even an emotional uh, connection with the persons in some sense that you emotionally are seeking their good. That the, that the feeling of hatred is to be gone and rather there is to be a feeling of love for the other person. And this is even to be reflected, not just even, as I said, not only in the outward actions that you do, but even then the stirring of your heart for your enemy in love must even lead you to pray for your enemy, to pray for your enemy. This is even going in some sense a step further. Even when your enemy doesn't see you, and even when the the good deeds you do for your enemy will never be recognized, you are to make sure that you are praying for your enemy. Now, this goes far beyond what any of the other cultures uh, taught about loving your enemy. Now, there were other cultures or ancient cultures, um, the Romans, uh, the Greeks. Uh, there are others who taught about the importance and the practical benefit of doing good to those who do evil to you. But it really never went beyond simply that. It was just simply there are practical benefits if you, in fact, treat those people well who treat you poorly. But notice Christ is going far beyond this. He's not just saying you treat them well because there can be some benefit for you if you do this. He's actually saying you are to do good to them, but that good is to be rooted in actually loving them. And it's even to cause you to pray for them. You are to pray even for your enemies. That is to say, you are not to do good to your enemy for pragmatic reasons, but you are in fact to love them because uh, this is in fact a reflection of Christ's love himself. And so now you, you may be saying, you know, this is a, uh, this is what Christ is teaching in terms of uh, the obligation, but you may be saying, Aren't there another a number of places in the scriptures which speak about actually hating the enemies of God? Or aren't there actually actually places where we in fact are supposed to 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 hate certain kinds uh, of people? And is this then a difference between perhaps you're thinking that the Old Testament, um, some of the passages with regard to, to hating uh, certain people is in the Old Testament, and then Christ now gives a new law in the New Testament with regard to loving even our enemies? Perhaps um, you're wondering how these things can all go together. Well, the first thing in terms of understanding this is that this is, in fact, not a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament actually teaches explicitly that you are to love your enemies. And so, for instance, in uh, Exodus chapter 23, uh, in verses 4 and 5, it speaks of uh, what you are to do if, uh, a, if you see a donkey or a mule or something that falls into a pit. You are to lift it out to help your neighbor, and you are to do this even if the neighbor is your enemy. You are to love your enemy, and if you see someone who is in trouble, who is your enemy, you are to actually go out of your way to help them. So the Old Testament teaches, just as Jesus is teaching here, that you are to love your enemy. And also, the New Testament teaches that there are times when you are to hate particular people and actions. Uh, you are to at least reflect God's hatred, um, with regard to your actions to other people. So again, this is not a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. He is praying that those who do not love God will be cursed by God. 
This is actually very similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22, where the psalmist says that he actually hates those who hate God. Do I not hate them with complete hatred, he says. Uh, but this is, again, no different. There is the, Paul is saying, let those who do not love Christ be accursed. And the psalmist is saying, I hate those who hate God with, with a complete hatred. So how are we, so if the, if the teaching is the same then, if both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that we are to love our enemies, and yet there is some situation where hatred is acceptable and even an obligation, how do we understand the difference between these two things? Well, there are a couple of distinctions that we have to keep in mind. First, we have to distinguish between a personal enemy and an enemy of God. A personal enemy or an enemy of God. Notice in Exodus 23 that if your personal enemy has uh, a an animal that falls into a pit, you are to help. And here, Christ is talking about love for your personal enemies. In both cases, in the New Testament and the Old Testament that I quoted from about hatred, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 and the psalmist in Psalm 139 is speaking about hating those who hate God. There is an appropriate level of hatred that can come for those who are hardened in their hatred to God. And this is what the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, is speaking of. That there is a sense in which we can be, we are against people who are against God, not because they are against us, but because we in fact love God. And that is what uh, both the New Testament and the Old Testament speak of. Now, there's another distinction that we have to keep in mind, or at least a qualification that we have to keep in mind, is, and that is that we have to keep in mind the possibility of conversion. The possibility of conversion, which in some ways tempers uh, the way in which we, we interact with those who are truly enemies of God. In the Old Testament, the possibility of conversion was very, very low. Uh, there, would, there was not a strong expectation that many of those who persecuted the church of God would be converted. There's no reason to think otherwise because the Spirit had not been given. Uh, the, we, the, the prophets had said that, that all the nations would come streaming in when the Messiah comes and when the Spirit is given. That hadn't happened yet. And so many of the people, it was overwhelming majority, uh, nearly 100% of all people who hated God and opposed the church and persecuted the Jews Nearly 100% of them would continue to hate God all the way to the end of their lives. This is, however, not the case in the New Testament anymore. There is a difference in that even those who persecute you could become those who are your brothers or sisters in Christ. And so in that way, then, you can. it is right to oppose those who hate God and are hardened in that hatred. But even then, in the way that you treat them, needs to be with love out of the, the respect for the possibility that they could, in fact, be converted. This is someone who's not even your personal enemy, someone who's not your personal enemy, but someone who is hardened in his hatred of God and a persecutor of the church. Now, one of the, the great examples of a, the possibility of conversion actually comes even from the Apostle Paul himself. Remember, he was one of these people. He was a, a God-hater in that he persecuted the church and when he was even converted and Christ appeared to him, Christ even said, why do you persecute me? Why are you acting so fervently against me? And the reason Christ said that is because Paul was a persecutor of the church. And yet, and yet he was converted. He was converted by the grace of God and became, uh, of course, one of, of the greatest defenders of the Christian faith, one of the greatest preachers of the gospel. And even we owe much of our New Testament to his writings. And so in light of this, then, um, it is right for even when we are persecuted, for us 
to love and pray for those who persecute us, to oppose them in certain ways as we uh, as we recognize that they are in fact the enemies of God. Now, this is more this is becoming more and more relevant in today's uh, world because the number of enemies who rise up against the church appears uh, to be growing. It has always been a problem. It's, the church has never been without enemies, but it does appear that this is growing uh, at this time. And if things get much worse, or even if they continue to just continue on the trajectory that they're on, you need to understand how you are going to react when you face opposition and persecution. When there are enemies who seek to persecute you, you need to understand what your obligation is and how you are going to treat them. You need to have it settled in your mind beforehand that you are going to treat your persecutors with love that you are even going to pray for them. Now, I even say to settle in your mind beforehand, uh, many of you are probably already facing uh, persecution in various ways. And so even as you think about the persecution you do face, which again is likely to increase, you are to settle in your mind beforehand and even now be thinking that you will treat that person with love and that you will pray for them, even praying that God would be merciful to that person as he was to the Apostle Paul as he was to Saul, who later became Paul, knowing that God can, in fact, save those who persecute us. Yeah, it is something that God regularly regularly does. He, he often will use the suffering of his people, the godly suffering of Christians, to convert some, some who even persecute the church. And so this is the obligation. You are to love your enemies. You are to pray for those who persecute you. Now, Notice in verse 45, verses 45 through 47, Christ gives, uh, first in verse 45, the purpose, why you are to do this. And then in verses 46 and 47, he gives a couple of arguments as to why you are to do this. So the purpose of doing this, and then uh, the, a couple of arguments for why you are to love uh, your enemies. Notice the purpose is given, that you might be sons of your Father in heaven. That you might be sons of your Father in heaven. The idea is that your actions or to be consistent with the fathers that there might be a visible family resemblance between your actions and the father's actions. As the father acts, so too his sons should act. You are to do this that you might truly be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, it's important to recognize here that Christ is not giving this as a condition whereby you must love your enemies in order to be counted as sons before him. He's not saying that you must love your enemies in order to be adopted as his sons. There is a, a difference. There's actually two ways in the scriptures that the, that the scriptures speak of, of being a son of God. You can either be a son through adoption or you can be a son by birth. In some ways, a Christian is both, but in different ways. A, a Christian is a son by adoption when God declares you to be a son, but also you are born again. You actually have a new birth and that birth is not a declaration of your sonship, but it's actually making you a son by nature. So you are made a son by nature in some ways, and you are, when you're born by the Spirit, and you are also, in some ways, uh, adopted. What Christ is saying here is that you don't, you don't need to act in a certain way in order to receive the adoption as sons, rather as one who is adopted and who, at, who has also been given a nature that makes you a son of God, 
as one who's been born again by the Spirit, there is a necessity for you acting out that nature. That there is a necessity for you acting truly as a son of God. If you are going to be born again, such that now you are born into the family of God, then what that means is that you must have a kind of family resemblance, that as the father so acts, so too you will act as his son. As it's often said, you know, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Well, that is to be true spiritually as well. If you have been born as a son or daughter of God, then you are also to reflect God uh, in all things. You are to grow uh, in uh, your sonship uh, in this way. You are to continually, you are to continually to be uh, conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is your elder brother, and you are to act as He acted, as He Himself perfectly reflects the Father in heaven. And you are to do this. You are to reflect God in this way. And what what Christ will go on to say then in the next uh, phrase, next clause, is that. God also loves his enemies. And this is how then, why you then are to love yours. Um, If you are to be sons of God and reflect him, then you have to recognize that God, in fact, loves those who uh, fight against him. And so even as God loves his enemies, so too you are to love uh, your enemies. Now, we of course need a qualification at this point. Um, There is a very limited sense in which we can say that God loves uh, all people. There's a particular and special sense in which he loves uh, his people, which is quite different um, from what Christ is speaking of here. Uh, but yet, Christ is saying, you are to love your enemies because those people who are your enemies, God also causes his sun to shine on them, and he causes his rain to fall on them. He he has been good uh, to all people in this world. This is what uh, historically has been called common grace. And there is a sense in which God is gracious to every single person, not savingly, but yet truly, he is gracious to all people. He does cause his son to rise. Uh, Think about the extent of this, that people who are rebellious to God, who will never believe, who uh, will spend their entire lives hating God and going from bad to worse, that God still gives them the opportunity to repent, that he still sends people to preach the gospel to them, that he even gives them a lot of the, the, the pleasures of this world to experience and enjoy. Uh, the, 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 in some ways, the, the same, very same things that he gives to his own people. He gives uh, to uh, various sinners who will never come to him. He gives them all of these blessings. He causes his son, his son to rise on the good and the bad. He causes his rain to fall on all of them. He does this out of his gracious character. And as God does that for others... So you are to do it for others as well. As God indiscriminately is, shows grace in this way to all people, so to you indiscriminately in, in this way are to show grace to all people as well. Now, even as I've, I've said, there's a distinction between God's love for his people and God's love for all people. Um, and you know, some of you don't even want to use the word love for all people. And that, you know, the, the qualifications are, as long as it's qualified, it's, it's I think, indifferent in one way or the other. But the idea here is that it, this is even reflected in the way that you are to love all people as well. Um, there is a particular and special love that you have, particularly for the church, and that you ought to have, that goes far beyond, is far deeper than the love that you have for all people. And yet, there is still an obligation for you to love all people. Now, even as I say, that God loves all people, of course, that the qualifications must come. And there may be many Bible uh, passages that are coming into your mind now, which 
indicate that it appears that God actually hates some people and loves others. And this is where there's a distinction, where the love that God has for his people is very different from the love, that, if, we can, if we use that word, the love that he has for all people. Uh, there are, in fact, a number of places in the Old Testament and in, in the New that speak of God hating the sinner. Think of uh, Psalm 5, that, uh, it's, where it's not even just the, the particular sins, but actually the sinner. God does not like uh, sinners. Uh, or Malachi 1, you know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. There's a distinction between them. One of them is under the wrath of God, and one of them um, is related to, uh, you know, is actually the object of God's love. How can we say that God loves all people in some ways and yet uh, hates particular people? Uh, the way is, is just a, a, exactly the way I've been saying in terms of qualifying. Um, there is a sense in which God's actions, even towards those he hates, are loving. It is a it is a loving and gracious thing for him to put the judgment off and to allow people the opportunity to repent through the preaching of the gospel, to actually have the gospel preached to them where they can act in accordance with their own will and make the decision for themselves whether or not they'll receive this, this grace, which, of course, uh, no one does without the help uh, of God himself. God's patient acting towards others and the kindness that he shows even towards those who will never be saved is a great act uh, of kindness. And so there is ways in which God ultimately loves some and hates others and yet also in a, in a more qualified way in which he does in fact do good to all. Now, if this is the case, if this is the case, we have to recognize as well that even as we speak of God doing good to all in some ways, we have to recognize that there is actually an end date for this, that God will not indiscriminately be merciful forever. He will not be merciful to all people forever. He causes his sun to shine on the good and the bad now. He causes his rain to fall on the good and the bad now. He will not cause his sun to shine on the good and the bad forever. And he will not cause his rain to fall on the good and bad forever. And in the last day, on the day of judgment, when all of God's patience is used up and the day of judgment, in fact, comes, at that point then, there will be no sense, there will be no sense whatsoever in which God is indiscriminately good to all people. At that point, at that point, all, all actions of God's common grace will be removed. And at that point then, if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way, the only thing that you will know from God is his wrath. Anything that today can be used for your comfort and enjoyment in this world will be removed because that is an evidence of God actually being merciful uh, to you. And he will remove that on the last day. And even then, the way in which we love our enemies is bound up and is, reflect, is to reflect God in exactly this way as well. Insofar as there is the opportunity for conversion, insofar as God will in fact draw people who previously were his enemies, and we don't know who those people are, we don't know who God's going to draw and who he's not going to draw, insofar as that is a reality that will continue all the way to the last day, we love our enemies. But brothers and sisters, there's even coming a day when we will no longer love our enemies, when our enemies will perfectly correspond with God's enemies, and there will be no more opportunity for conversion. And at that point, just as we reflect God in loving our enemies now, so too on the last day we will actually reflect God in hating all of his enemies with a perfect hatred. And this is something that you need to keep in mind and even 
uh, if you are here and you do not really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if this, if things related to church are a game, uh, if it's not something that you take seriously, you need to think. Uh, uh, you need to think about the way in which God has been merciful to you now, and the way in which this will not last forever. All of the things that God does when He causes His sun to shine and when He causes His rain to fall, this is an undeserved kindness. It is an undeserved kindness. It's an undeserved kindness with an expiration date that He gives to you now to cause you to repent, to lead you to repentance. Do not presume upon God's kindness. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 2. Do not presume upon the kindness and the mercy of God, which he has given to you in order to lead you to repentance. The reason why God causes the sun to rise on you and the reason why he causes his rain to fall on you now is because he is showing you that he is merciful to you. He's showing you that if, if you will turn to him, if you will turn, then you will be saved. That opportunity is not something that will last forever. If, if you are not taking these things seriously, turn to Christ and be saved. Do not presume upon his kindness. God is in some ways indiscriminately good to all, but he will not always be this way. And we are to reflect him at every stage in the history of redemption. Now, that's the way in which we are to reflect him. So uh, if, you're, if you think about the obligations to love our enemies, the purpose is that we might be sons of our Father in heaven. We are to reflect him. He is our Father. We are to act like him as sons. Notice then in verses 46 and 47, Christ gives a couple of arguments why you're to do this. Basically, it, can, it, come, it comes down to, if we were to summarize it, if you don't, if you don't love your enemies, you're just like everybody else, which means you're also just like all of the worst sinners you can possibly think of. The people who are most evil in this world are willing still to love those who love them. And that's, that, that's the, the force of, of Christ's argument. Notice he does this in two, uh, in two ways. First in verse 46, speaking about love for others. Uh, and then he compares this to tax collectors. And then there's a difference with, in, with regard to manuscripts in verse 47. Um, it's with regard to greeting. And then the difference is, is it, it could be speaking of tax collectors or um, Gentiles as well. But probably at least both categories need to be kept in mind as we understand uh, this particular passage. So the idea is, if you only love those who love you, you are just like the tax collectors, which in the mind of a Jew is the worst kind of sinner. You are just like the worst of all kinds of sinners. Now think of it, this is still true today. It's true for any class of sinner, no matter what you think of. Prostitutes, nice to those who are nice to them. Gang members are nice to those who are nice to them. Nazis were nice to those who are nice to them. If your standard of righteousness does not go beyond being nice to those people or loving those people who love you, your standard is really at the very bottom. You could not even, you could not really even exclude Hitler with that standard. Now, the reason, uh, and then notice in verse 47, the, the, the next thing is says, says the same thing, you know, talking about greeting. Um, and, and again, we need to at least keep in mind that there is some kind of relationship with the Gentiles here as well, that the Jews were unwilling to greet the Gentiles. And, he's, and you know, uh, Christ points out, well, the Gentiles are willing to greet themselves. Gentiles are willing to greet other Gentiles. Tax collectors greet other, other tax collectors. They don't, you know, they, they don't despise them in this way. They're nice to them. Uh, the worst kinds of sinners are nice to other kinds of sinners in the same category who are also nice to them. That's, that's something that is very, very common. Now, 
The reason why this is important to think about is because of this. It's very common today, as it is in every age, for people to vastly overestimate their righteousness, to vastly overestimate their righteousness. And usually, the standard of righteousness is something like, I'm a nice person, I'm a good person. And the bar is set at, if you are nice to me and treat me fairly, I will also do the same to you. Notice here what Christ is saying. That standard does not exclude anybody. It is an incredibly low bar. And it is certainly not the bar that, that is set for you on the day of judgment. If all that you can say is, I am nice and I love those who love me, then truly, truly, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of God on the last day. The reality is, is that you are called to much more. And here, what Christ is saying, he's speaking of the righteousness that is related to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom righteousness that you are to emulate as a Christian is that you are not to just to love those who love you. You are to love your enemies. You are to love your enemies. Anything short of this is not the righteousness that's required for the kingdom of God. And this is why, brothers and sisters, uh, this is is particularly why we can say that no one is righteous who's outside of Christ. This is why those who think they're righteous are always overestimating their own righteousness. And And I would just plead with you, if you are resting on the fact that you are a good person, and before God, that you believe that you will be accepted by him on the last day for that reason, I would urge you, urge you to repent, to think of the mercy that God has shown you to give you the time that you have by causing his son to rise on you and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. There's only true righteousness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, then the calling on your life is to love your enemies even as God has always loved his, that in this way you are to reflect the Father. And this reflecting of the Father is even the way that the Lord Jesus Christ concludes this entire section. In verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is not just a summary of verses 43 through 48. It's a summary going all the way back to verse 21. As Christ has expounded the greater righteousness of the kingdom, If you were to summarize everything that God requires, everything that Christ requires as the new lawgiver, he requires that you be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. So far is he from denigrating or subtracting from the law of Moses that Christ actually puts the standard for righteousness for the Christian at God himself. Even as Moses did, you are to be holy as God is holy. You are here to be perfect even as God is is perfect. You are to reflect him in every way. And this is to be, for all those who are in the kingdom, this is to be your constant striving. And this is to be the thing that you grow in every day in your lives. This is to be the thing that you plead with God for, that he would cause you to grow in righteousness. And even as, even as Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, speaking about the righteousness of the law that he was giving. And he says, you know, when all these nations, when they see the righteousness of this law, they will know this is a wise and understanding people. So too with the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is he the lawgiver, whereby anyone who sees the law of Christ, they will say the same thing. Truly, this is a wise and understanding people who has such a righteous law for this kingdom. Not only is that true, but also because of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ is actually one for you 
the ability to grow in grace so that you can keep this law. So that now, it goes beyond even what Moses said, where Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, this people will see this law and they will say, you are a great and wise nation. Now it is to be that other people are to see this law and your life in conformity to it. And they are to say, truly, this king of yours, this Lord Jesus Christ, is a great king. A great king who rules over his people with perfect equity and justice, who gives the most righteous of all laws, and who in his great wisdom and power, grace and strength, has even given his people the ability to keep this law. If you are thinking about, you know, how can I possibly keep these things? If you think about, I'm not to hate uh, you know, to hate even my enemies if hatred is murder, and not to lust after other women. I'm, uh, you know, marriage is so holy that it can only be broken apart uh, by sexual immorality. If I am to keep uh, oaths and vows perfectly, never swear flippantly. If I am to turn the other cheek, if I am to love my enemy, if I am to do all these things, how can it be that I can actually grow in grace and to do these things? The answer is, you are to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King who is not only the lawgiver but even the one who gives the grace to obey the law. And may it be, brothers and sisters, that as you think about growing in these things, that you would pursue them by pursuing Christ, particularly through the means that he has given to you to pursue these things. Namely, that you would be often in worship, that you would not miss the worship of God's name. This is the way in which Christ communicates to you the benefits of redemption, the way in which he communicates to you even the ability to keep the law that you would be often in prayer, that you would attend the prayer meeting, that you would that you would worship as a family, that you would be diligent in the word, that you would be diligent even uh, in prayer individually as well. This is the, these are the ways in which we rely on our King who gives us the grace to grow in all these things, that we might reflect him, that we might uh, that, that we might even, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Son, be conformed to his glory more and more. May God grant us the grace so to uh, grow in the righteousness of the kingdom that we would not relax even one of the least of the commandments of Christ, but that we would, in fact, even have righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and so be able to enter into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, how would you thank you for the grace that you have shown to us? Lord, we do thank you that we, in your Son, we do not only have the forgiveness of sins and even our justification where we've been declared righteous, but Lord, we also have this promise of growth and grace, which even we see in ourselves has begun as you have planted your seed in our hearts. May it be, O Lord, that we would grow so as to be perfect, even as you, our Father in heaven, are perfect. Help us to reflect you in all things. Help us to grow in our love even for our enemies, that we would be willing to love those who hate us, and that we would even pray for those who persecute us. May we even, Lord, in this love, have the boldness to explain to people the, the reality of what is coming on the last day, that there is a time when your kindness will expire for all of those who do not put their faith in your Son. Help us, Lord, to proclaim this message boldly, to do it for the sake of those who do not know you, and even out of love for them. For, Lord, we do ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.